I went for a walk yesterday morning, and as I went for a walk, I've been spending time in Philippians 2. Obviously, that's like our key uh, scripture for the year that the Lord's got us pounding through and journeying through this year. But in Philippians 2, I was, I was really caught with some of the stuff that Paul's saying there in the early parts of that, where he's really, you know, he's, he's really challenging as he's writing. He's speaking to the people of the kingdom. He's speaking to the body of Christ. He's speaking to the church. And he's also, at the same time, He's speaking to those who are seeking to maybe um, prop up their brokenness uh, by taking advantage of the church, and um, and he's and he's challenging them as well. And you know, earlier on in some of his other writings, Paul talks about how he doesn't peddle the gospel for for uh, you know for wealth and all of that, and because obviously his story is. Whether he had a lot or a little, that wasn't the point for Paul. The point was he had Jesus, and he walked with Jesus. And, and so Paul's talking to the church here, and um, I was, after I spent some time reading this again yesterday morning, I went for a walk, and as I went for a walk, I was like, Lord, this whole topic of humility, it's not one that comes easy. It's not one that's wrestled with lightly. Because um, it's really confronting all the way along if, if we really want to consider what Paul's saying here about humility. And, and I was like, Lord, how do, I, how do I really share humility or put it in a picture word in a way that might you know, make sense for us? And so as I'm walking along, I, I feel like, you know, I, I started to see a little picture in my mind of a TV program that I used to watch when I was a young boy. Now, growing up in the 70s, uh, I used to come home from school every afternoon, and when the TV was on, uh, if it was allowed to be on after we had to clean our school shoes and put our, you know, do all that sort of chore type stuff, um, you know, then, you know, before we could play cricket or whatever in the backyard, because it was daylight saving, but um, in Sydney, but I used to watch this program, and this, this TV program, it, it was called Happy Days. Have you seen Happy Days? They still play reruns of it now on TV. I kind of like, even if I just get like 60 seconds of Happy Days on TV, then I just get this, like, this warm, oh, that's a really, I love that, warm memories. <laughs> and, uh, and Happy Days. And, uh, you know, it starred a very young um, uh, Ron Howard before he became the fantastic Hollywood director that he is now, and his own children are now incredible actors in Hollywood. Um, but it, it also starred um, a guy by the name of Fonzie. Now, um, Fonzie was like, when I went to school, uh, primary school in the 70s, everyone wanted a leather jacket because Fonzie had a leather jacket. <laughs> because Fonzie was cool. Fonzie was so cool. I'm trying to think of his real name in real life. It's Arthur something. Henry, Henry Winkler. That's it. Thanks, Bruce. You, you watch the trailers too. Um, Henry Winkler. So, but everyone wanted to have a black leather jacket like Fonzie. And I remember in primary school, uh, before we moved back to Queensland, there was a school dance on. And uh, this one guy, he was a couple of grades older than me, but he wore like blue, sh- blue jeans. He had these really killer 
you know, white sand shoes on. He had a white T-shirt and a black leather jacket. And I just gazed at him all night going, that is so cool. <laughs> anyway, and I was like, oh, I want to be like that guy there. He's so cool. But anyways, as, um, as I was thinking about this yesterday while I was walking along the, the path yesterday morning, all of a sudden I went from having these warm, fond memories of Fonzie so cool to all of a sudden I was remembering some scenes where Fonzie had made a complete mess of some situations and circumstances and he got it completely wrong and he made a mess of it and Fonzie knew it and a couple of times Fonzie would come up to the people that he had done wrong by and he would stumble over these words. In fact, he could never get them out. The, the, the first ones were, you're nodding your heads, you know it. The first ones was to be able to say, I'm wrong. And he would get to this point and he would go, I'm... I'm... And he just couldn't, he just couldn't bring himself to say, I'm wrong. He couldn't do it. And he would stumble over it and stumble over it. And the person he was trying to apologize would feel so bad for him, they would say, oh, it's all right. It's all right. And Fonzie would be relieved because he didn't have to actually say, I'm wrong. And they did the same thing when he was a couple of times where he'd make a meal of things and he would have to say, I'm sorry. The same thing. He would get to that, to that person and that relationship and he would go, I'm I'm." And he could never do it. And so, the, again, the person would feel so bad for him. They would, they would finish it for him. And they would say, it's okay, Fonzie. I get what you're trying to say. But the thing was, Fonzie, even though he was, like, super cool, he was really broken. And he was really caught because he couldn't actually bring his heart to the table and honestly put it in front of people and risk saying, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. And as I was talking to the Lord about that, um, I felt like he said, you know, Kirk, those two little phrases are my gift to the world. I'm sorry and I'm wrong. They're my gift to the world. If you've got your Bible... Open it up to Philippians chapter 2, or open your Bible app. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read it from top to go to bottom again, or to verse 18. 1 through 18. If you've got any encouragement from being united to Jesus Christ, if any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, again, you've got to hold this. Paul's writing to the people of the kingdom. And he's writing to a people that understand themselves as a people. And it's inside the context of being a people that we discover who we are as unique individuals. But Paul's writing to the people of the kingdom in the church at Philippi. 
So he's saying, if you've got any tenderness, so he's writing to a whole people group. So he's saying on the collective, if there's any evidence of you being connected to Jesus, this stuff should be flowing out. And then he goes on, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so now he illustrates that. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the, nature, the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and a depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And as you hold out the word of life, in order that I might boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too, should be glad and rejoice with me. This is like um, such a powerful scripture. And God is inviting us as a fellowship of believers this year into discovering the fullness and the life that there is in this, to journey into the fullness of it. Now, humility, like I said before, it's not an easy one to wrestle with because it means we have to let down our guard it means we have to actually humble ourselves. It's not something humility doesn't come upon us. It's something that we have to do on our end so that we can engage with the fullness and the goodness and the confidence of God for our life. So Paul here speaks quite strongly and gives some really good illustration as to what humility looks like. For those of you who know anything of modern church history and the moves of God in the earth, where the great revivals have been poured out, in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards in the United States, he was a leader of the first great awakening of the outpouring of God in this part of the, 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 the northeast of America. He says this about humility. He says, We must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterises the Christian life, the most essential things. Humility, 
uh, one of the things I love about um, the, the, the time in which we live is I do, I do have a bit of a thing for technology and I do see why my son is like off, off the charts with his fascination in technology because I, I, I can see myself in him like that. I'm like, whoa, this kid's like, he loves it. Uh, but one of the things I love about technology, particularly with cameras, cameras now, you don't have to be cautious about how many photos you take. Remember once upon a time you only had like 24 snaps on a roll of film and then you had to take it to the camera shop and you leave it there for two weeks and they develop it and bring it back. Well, you know, yeah, and, and then you never knew what you took until you got the lucky dip bag come back and you go, oh, that one was terrible. <laughs> Throw that one out. Oh, there, we got one, you know. Uh, and you spend all this money getting just maybe two or three really good photos. And, you know, the quality at the time was pretty good. But now... Now, my son Luke, he's got this camera, like, and it's this Canon, well, it looks like a Canon, but its brand is called Canon, and when it's all put together, it's got this thing, lens on the front, and you don't even have to put your eyeball up to this thing, it's got a digital screen, you can do it all from here and fire away, and it's fantastic. Like, on Friday, I got to go and see my little girl sing at her school, and I was in the crowd with, with the Canon camera. And so from way back when, I could get right up close. And I was able to just go like snap, 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 snap for, you know, like just nonstop. And it didn't matter. And then last night, Luke puts it all up on the screen. It fills up the screen with all these photos. And I was able to, like, it was like almost like real time. It was, you know, eyes closed, eyes open, mouth open, mouth closed. You know, the, every nuance of her singing was caught in time. And what, but one of the things I've noticed about, you know, digital technology, as wonderful as it is, it's actually really honest. And that's why people spend so much money and time in media and so forth today touching up photos because we don't want it to be so honest. But digital cameras now, like, you know, they are like a mirror. And when we stand in front of a mirror we actually are confronted with what is, not with what we think we'd like it to be. <laughs> so this morning I was like, you know, I went, looked in the mirror, I was a bit bleary-eyed when I looked in the mirror and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got all these random eyebrow things going on now and I can't control that and I'm just like, what is that? I don't like that. Yeah, it's old, old man syndrome or something. Yes, yes, not good. Well, we call them our Johnny Howards, you know. <laughs> We call them our Johnny Howards. But anyway, and so I'm just like, oh, that's brutal. I didn't think I looked like that this morning. Well, guess what? I did. <laughs> I did. But this is, this is what um, humility means. It means to be actually able to take an honest look at yourself and appreciate you for who you actually are. Not what you think you want to be, or not what you think others say you should be, but humility is this space where you can actually stand with yourself, with God, and with others and go, well, this is who I am, and put it on the table. Put... And in the process of that, we risk all sorts of things. It means to have a right view of ourselves before God. And this is the gift of the church to the world. 
that there is a place on earth where people gather in the name of God where you can actually be who you are. And you no longer have to perform or strive as you do in the context of the world. But that there is grace for you to be able to, in the context of gathering like this, look at each other and go, wow, there's some amazing realities about your life and my life. And there's some amazing difficulties as well. But this is the gift of the church to the world. Nowhere else on planet Earth is it graced with heaven like that. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, he says, For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment and in accordance with the measure of faith that's given you. Again, Paul's context here is he's talking about a life of worship, of being a living sacrifice to God. And if you keep reading in Romans 12 there, he goes on and uses this fantastic illustration of the human body and how the human body is made up of all these different parts, eyes, ears, legs, head, you know, feet, arms, the whole torso, the whole thing. And he's saying, know your place and how special you are. And how important it is that you realise who you are in this context. Because as we do that, we tell the world of the great love of God in Jesus. So to think of ourselves too highly, you know, it's not hard to sniff it when someone's up themselves, is it? You can, you can see it coming and you can go, man, they are just so full of themselves. No, you can't have a relationship with them because this, this, their opinion of themselves is so lofty, it's out of touch with reality. And yet at the same time, it's difficult to have a relationship with people who think so lowly of themselves that their first words out of their mouth are all the time, all the time, are self-deprecating. And we beat ourselves up and we lower our actual true value in God. And that's really hard to be with as well and hard to love someone as well through that and into life and freedom in Jesus. Paul says, don't, don't, don't think too highly, don't think too lowly, but just think with sober judgment according to the grace of God on your life. So in Paul's writing here to the Philippians, he's contending with perhaps one of the greatest dynamics of the human heart that needs to be overcome. Uh, Edwards, is, Edwards was right. He's contending with the establishment of humility at the cost of human pride. And it's humility that establishes the kingdom of God in the earth. I'll just unpack that a little bit. <clears throat> Pride, simply put, is this. It's the ploy and the work of the enemy of God towards the hearts and the minds, the heart and the mind of a person or a people to undermine their confidence in the goodness and the love of God. And it's the awakening within our heart of a desire to be God for ourselves. Let me just reread that. 
Simply put, pride is the ploy and the work of the enemy of God towards the heart and mind of a person or a people to undermine their confidence in the goodness and the love of God. And it is an awakening of a desire to be God for oneself. Let me illustrate that a little bit. Um, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 14, uh, in, yeah, Isaiah chapter 14, he kind of gives us a bit of a picture of the, the origins of Satan and the enemy of God. And um, he, he articulates this uh, incredible um, revelation of who Satan is. Now, let me just, let me just read that to you in, in Isaiah 14 verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Just hang on to that for a second. So Satan was once the morning star of heaven. In other words, a great creature, a creature in creation that brought glory to God and was even given the name, the son of the dawn. I mean, that's a, that's a very... Um, if you contemplate that a bit in the realm of relationship with God, that's quite a lofty place of, of, uh, of both identity and um, action. But you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations, because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit enthroned on the, on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. If you listen to what Isaiah is articulating there, it's interesting to note what Satan said in his heart, and he says it one, two, three, four, five times in the space of a few sentences. He says, from his heart, I will. It's a place of self-determination. It's a place of self-promotion. It's a place of self, uh, you know, just advance. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do this. And ultimately, perhaps the most offensive thing is, I'll make myself like the most high. I'll be my own God. I will be self-determining for my own life. Thank you very much. This is the very thing that actually then causes him to be cast from the heavens and into the earth. It's the elevation of the heart. And that's why King Solomon wrote it when he said, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. This, this is the greatest field of battle in the human being that God works with right here, in here. That's why God, the scriptures constantly, you know, when God's anointing and appointing kings in the Old Testament, he's not looking for what they look like on the outside. He wants to know what the condition of their heart is. God's after the heart above all else. Because when he has our heart, he has all of us. 
So Satan continues on. He says, I will do this. I will do that. But if you compare that to what we read in Philippians 2 about Jesus, Jesus humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant. And I guess the, the most like powerful moment of that, we've just come through the Easter, the Easter celebrations is where Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, his, his punishment and crucifixion, is he's crying out before God. And he's saying, oh, if only there was another way, but not my will, yours be done. And he yielded himself to the purposes of God. And again, Uh, Philippians 2 talks about how though he humbled himself, what did God do with him? He exalted him. The scriptures are very clear that pride does come before a fall, but humility is the pathway to honour. Proverbs tells us this. Have a look at what happened to... So we've looked at Satan... What cast him out of the presence of God? It's the elevation of his own lofty thinking and determinations for his own self here at the seat of his heart. Adam and Eve, well, what happened to them in the garden? Well, the scripture clearly tells us that, that they too fell sucker to the ploy and the schemes of the enemy of God to distrust the goodness of God and to become people of self-determination. And what happens to them at the end of Genesis chapter 3? God says, you are now banished. And they are sent from the very place that they know all of life is meant to be found in. If we, if we want to play in that field of pride, we will find ourselves further and further moving away, and you'll find these glaring absences or voids where there is no presence of the love of the Father. I mean, this is like, oh, this is the stuff of the heart. And if you look at the early church, James wrote to the early church, he says, he, says, he quotes Proverbs 3.34 to the church, and he says, Remember, guys, this is what the Scripture says. God opposes the proud. Now, how does he oppose them? He actually gives them what they want. If you want to be king, if you want to be in control, if you want to rely on your own capacities and resources, and if you think you can do it all, have it. Have your way. God opposes the proud, but he shows favour to the humble. To those that are prepared to take a sober look at themselves and go, all right, I got a fairly good idea on who I am. I've lived with myself for enough time now to know what my faults are, how great I am and and how terrible I am at the same time. I know my limits and my abilities to be able to produce and at the same time to fret and fear. I've got a fairly good snapshot on who I am. And I've got a great snapshot on who you are, God, because I have seen you clearly 
in the face of your son, Jesus. And I want to be like you. And Paul says it in Galatians 2, where he says, guess what, guys? The revelation of Jesus to me is so profound, so life-transforming, so humbling. It's no longer me that wants to live. It's Jesus alive in me. I sacrifice my life that I might come alive in him. And for every one of you who've been baptised in the waters of your baptism, that's the transaction that took place. You sacrificed it all. I was listening to a gentleman during the week, and he's a New Testament professor over in the States, and he was, he was talking about a whole bunch of stuff. But at the end of the interview, there was this little question that the person threw at him. I thought, whoa, hang on, here's the pearl. And he said, the, the question came in and said, what's the biggest idol that the Christian world has to face today? I thought, that's a great question. I'm thinking, it's got to be money. It's got to be money. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, it's got to be money. He says, this, this is this guy's opinion. You know, he's not the fountain of all knowledge and truth, but this is just his take. His take was, is time. Time. It's my time. I'll spend it how I want. That's not the message of the gospel. <laughs> Is it? The message of the gospel is that Jesus is so profoundly wonderful to us. I, couldn't, I don't want to live a minute without him being king and Lord, provider, generous, gracious, kind, life-giving, hope, full of, full of destiny and purpose and energy and life for me. I, I sacrifice my life. Time. Time. What I have time for and what I don't. We spend so much time juggling that one. The other week, you know, um, I got a call. Someone wasn't doing so well and, and a phone call and they weren't doing so well. And, you know, I was at the time of day where I was like, I'm putting the feet up on the couch. I'm reaching for a glass of wine and dinner's nearby. And I'm like... Oh, this is my time. And just beautifully, the voice of Jesus whispers to my heart and says, sorry, Who, whose time are you living on? I'm sorry, Lord. There's that gift he's given us. I'm sorry, Lord. And so I had to put down my comforts and self-absorption and... Serve for the sake of another, which was literally a five-minute phone call in which I was able to listen and pray for someone and they felt liberty and the generosity of God in their circumstance. I'm sorry, whose time are we living on? That is the greatest idol in the Christian world today that this New Testament professor says that we have to battle with. Time. Well, I want a balanced life. I want a measured life. I don't want to burn out. I, don't, I want to go the distance. I want, to, yeah, I want to do all those things too. But Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our life. And there was a saying, I don't know if it was a Wimberism. I think it might have been. And he used to, uh, if it's not, I'm sorry to whoever it came from, but um, 
I'm just a coin in the pocket of God to be spent how he wants to spend me. For the sake of his glory and kingdom in the earth. I mean, this, this is where, how humble do we want to really be? I mean, how, and how great and, and good and wonderful is Jesus? He knows our capacities. But we're not leaning on our capacity. We're trusting in his resurrection power filled in the Holy Spirit, are we not? Hello? What are we leaning on to do our daily life? What are we drawing from? Paul talks about praying that the energy that was in Christ that rose him from the dead would be at work in his very body. Physiologically, I'm tired. I am tired all the time. Who's not tired? But in those moments, it's lean into Jesus as he calls us on into what he's wanting us to do. I've laboured there enough. The point is, um, God opposes the proud. He gives us over to what we want, but there is favour for those that will humble themselves. Even in Peter's letter to the church, in 1 Peter 5.5, he says, All of you, hey, whole church, Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Relationships not easy these days for you? Fatigued, worn out, can't do it anymore. The kids have taken all the juice out of me. Clothe yourself with Jesus. There is grace in him for every relationship and every situation and every circumstances. It's quite clear that the scripture tells us how any decision, thought, action and attitude towards God or towards each other as the body of Jesus in the earth, where there is a glaring absence of God's presence and love, it will lead us out of a fruitful life in Christ and into a fruitful life of self-promotion, self-interest, and a loss of confidence in God and all of his power that he's won for you in the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to have to listen back to that sentence because I think that was a good one. I've got to listen back to that sentence. Anyway, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, pride is a spiritual cancer and it eats up the very possibility of love or contentment and even common sense. Humility establishes the kingdom of God in our heart, in the life of the church and through the church to the world. King Solomon was right when he wrote it in Proverbs 18.12, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but but with humility... It comes before honour. Can I just say this? First and foremostly, the fact that God has humbled himself in Jesus and taken on flesh and crucified him, allowed himself to be crucified and the sin of the world come upon him and die and on the third day be risen again. Can I just say Let's just clear the board on this one. That action and that action of the love of God alone establishes once and for all time that God honours his creation 
and the people therein. There is nothing more that needs to be said or done to say that each and every person on planet Earth has been honoured by God through the sending and the, and the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you're looking for something else, you've missed all that there is. God has honoured you and me. He has humbled himself. He is the, the, the humble king and established honour on his created order and on every human being. And if you're looking for him to do some other trick or add to or value-added service to make you feel more honoured, you've actually cheapened and not really caught the fullness of the love of God for you and me in Jesus. There's nothing more he needs to do. If only we would listen to the drawings of the Holy Spirit in our heart that wants to establish confidence and trust in the goodness of God for our well-being and our life. And that we would do that in such a way of celebration between each other that the world would look at that and just go, that is heaven on earth right there. The Father is seeking to exalt and establish the reality of Jesus in our heart and our mind, in our relationships, in our careers and vocational hopes, in our love for the church, in our efforts to join him as the kingdom is advancing in the earth. The Father is seeking to establish and exalt the reality of Jesus. This, this does, though, require the humble heart. That is the playground or the field through which all this comes. <clears throat> I was just sitting there in worship before, and I'll just draw this to a close. And Humility. I felt like God was just showing me a few things. And Humility is the love of God calling us into grace, the fullness of grace, and out of a life of control and judgment. Humility is the work of Christ in our hearts calling us into relationship and out of our best efforts to hold everybody at arm's length for fear or fatigue. Humility is the love of Jesus in our hearts calling us into great love and honour for the church in the earth. All her shapes and colours and sizes she is wonderful and to be honoured and esteemed. And he calls us out of a life of self-determination and independence. And to call us 
the, the work of Christ, the humility and, and, and humbling, helping it to, to bring humility to our heart as we join with him in that, brings us into spiritual power and authority. Brings us into spiritual power and authority. And out of spiritual impotence and weakness. The work of Christ humbles us and invites us to humble our hearts as he calls us into a full actioning of the spiritual gifts that are on our life for the well-being of the church and for the glory of God in the earth. For the well-being of the people that we sit amongst and walk life with. God's if we, if we humble our heart and agree with the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, those gifts will be fanned into a flame and we'll be drawn out of a life of disloyalty and discontentment. And oh, I like this one. The Lord was talking to me about this just before. He says, and you know what, Kirk? I want to call you into, through the humble heart, I want to call you into a fullness of generosity that you know not of yet. A fullness of generosity that you know not of. And the reason why I know not of is because I, when the Lord says, come on, I go, well, hang on. When he says, come on, and we say, hang on, we're actually casting ourselves out of the generosity of the reign of God for our life. And we will continue to live spiteful, misery, poverty-bound lives. And the last one he wrote, and I put a big line around this one, he said, if you'll humble your heart, I can call you out of a distant relationship with me, with the church and the world, and I can call you into intimacy. The humble heart. 